Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. All right. Well, I'm going to pray before we get started. And uh, as soon as we do, as soon as I'm done praying, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 21. And uh, I'd just like to ask you as I'm praying, to be praying in your own heart, saying, Lord, could you... Work in Matt today to present your word and your truth, what we need to hear today. Help us to hear those things, okay? Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this day, and I thank you, God, that we are here. I ask now, Lord, as we look at your word and we look at this uh, section of Acts and Paul the Apostle now in Jerusalem, Lord, I just ask that you would fill me with your spirit as I speak and present. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just let the truth that is presented today be your truth and your word Uh, nothing else. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so we are on the final stretch of Acts. Paul is now in Jerusalem. And I don't know about you, but for those of you that have been here for uh, the majority of the time, it's kind of interesting going through a book like this where we've hit all these stories of Paul and Acts and what's going on and where he's been and to watch it get to this point. Like this is almost the end of Paul's story. And so it's just interesting to me to get to this, this part of it because I feel like I know Paul so much better just having read through this with all of you and studied this together. Uh, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, verse 17. We'll look there in just a minute. Uh, from now to the end of chapter 26 is going to be the story of Paul in Jerusalem. Chapters 27 and 28, the last two chapters of Acts, are going to be Paul sailing to Rome and then in the city of Rome. I want you to think for a moment, what have we seen, especially those of you who have been here for at least the majority of this, what have we seen Paul doing? Like if you had to summarize what Paul's been doing so far, how would you summarize what he's been doing? Just a phrase, a statement here, nothing specific. How would you summarize that? What have you seen Paul doing? What's that? Yeah, his goodbye tour, but even before that, let's go back over his, his, his ministry, right? What? What, like, how would you summarize what he does as he goes from place to place? Spreading the word. Um, anything else? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, he did, which means something different in America now. Um, uh, sorry, I just have to clarify in case anybody's wondering what Denise is talking about. Um, yes, suffering, right? Lots of different ways. Um, uh, what were you going to say? I've, I've probably made you lose your... Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, he's, you think about it. Uh, he's, how many missionary journeys has, has, has he been on? Does anybody know that number? Three, right? He's been... He just finished his third missionary journey. Very good. Hey, a lot of you knew that. That was good. Right? Third missionary journey. And uh, so he's gone into cities. He, uh, what's one of the places he usually goes into when he goes into a, sit, a city? What's that? Well, but uh, now in Jerusalem, yes. But in, in like in the, the, these Gentile cities, yeah, the synagogue, right? He usually goes into a Jewish synagogue. Does that always go well? <laughs> no. Right? Okay, so now, this is what we're going to see. There's going to be a real shift in Paul's ministry because 
So far, he's been going out, he's been ministering, he's been going to churches, he's been doing all these things. The rest of what we're going to hear about Paul in the book of Acts is him making a defense. So in fact, there's going to be five in the book of Acts. There's five defense speeches that he's going to make from now till the end. Okay? In 1 Peter 3.15, uh, Peter tells us to be ready at any time to give a defense of the gospel. And we're going to get to see Paul the Apostle doing that exact thing, making a defense of the gospel. We're going to see him first before a Jewish mob in Jerusalem. We're going to see him before the Jewish council. We're going to see him before a man named Felix, a historical figure who is the uh, governor uh, in uh, uh, Judea. We're going to see him before a guy named Festus. And then eventually in chapter 26, we're going to see him before King Herod Agrippa II. And then we assume after the book of Acts is over, he ends up before Caesar himself. Okay? So as I was looking at the last part of this, I was asking myself, how am I going to chop this up? And so clearly each of those defense speeches is going to make, make a really interesting sermon in and of itself. What did Paul, how did he defend the gospel? How did he defend his ministry? How did he defend Christ? But this week, I have to have, there's a big chunk leading up to that first defense speech. And so we're going to start in Acts 21, 17. Paul has just arrived in Jerusalem. That's what we're going to read right here. Paul is just arriving. He's landed. He, remember, everybody was telling him, don't go, don't go. But then they finally said, let the will of the Lord be done. And he's headed into Jerusalem. So in some sense, Paul knows this is not going to go smoothly as he comes in. I think that he's hoping, and this is just me thinking this based on some of the research I've done, I think he's hoping that the gift, remember he's bringing this collection with him, and do you remember he's bringing some other people with him? Remember some of these Gentiles from some of these other churches have traveled with him and, and to present this gift as representatives? I think he's hoping that this will smooth over some of the issues. So here we have verse 17, Acts 21. When we had come to Jerusalem, we, because Luke is with them, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So the other Christians that are there received them gladly. And I think at some point, it's not going to say it specifically, but at some point, maybe right here is when the gift is presented. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And so here we have James, the earthly brother of Christ, who's the, probably the head elder of the church at Jerusalem, along with these other elders, and uh, Paul sits down to meet with them. So he's greeted gladly. Some things probably happen between verse 17 and verse 18. Now he's sitting down with James and the other elders are present. Okay. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now I always pictured this part, Luke, who said he came with them to this point. And you're going to notice that even though it said us, the kind of the we and the us of Luke being part of this kind of drops out of the picture. I think he's still there, but he's just not a prominent player in what's getting ready to happen. Okay. But I always picture Luke off to the side taking notes, right? All these things that he's, in fact, in this part right here, if he's relating what's gone on in his ministry, you, can you picture Luke, the historian over there taking notes Going, I mean, some of the things I wonder that we've read in Acts where he wasn't present, do you think he kind of gathered some information here? In fact, he's going to be in Jerusalem for another two years. And so I think it's during this time that Luke actually does a lot of his going out and collecting information, 
for the writing of the book, what we call the book of Luke and the story of Jesus, where he says he, he gathered witnesses and he got testimonies. I mean, he has gone and done a lot of research. But here we have Luke. I think he's off. I just picture him off to the side of this Jewish council. Here's the elders. There's Paul. And he's like this nobody at this point. And he's over there at the side taking notes. What's going to happen? What's going on? And when they heard it, so he relates the ministry, and it says, and when they heard it, um, they glorify God. So the, the elders are there, and they glorify God. They're like, praise the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Now, it's an interesting way to phrase this, because if you followed his ministry, there's been Jews that were saved, but what have a lot of the Jews done in a lot of the cities that Paul's gone to? Have they rejected him? Absolutely. In fact, most of the riots and the things that have happened in these different cities, weren't they instigated by the Jewish people? Absolutely. So it's interesting that at this point, James, I think, speaking on behalf of the elders of the church of Jerusalem, says, oh, isn't this wonderful that we see all these thousands of Jews? He hones in on, on that part. Now, I got to stop and give you a short history lesson. I apologize. I'm going to try to make it interesting, but this is so, so very important if you're going to understand what happens next. I'm going to start my history lesson. I got a couple pictures here for you. This is a modern day picture of, anybody, I, I won't even tell you. Anybody know what this is a picture of? Yes, the Wailing Wall, okay? This is the Western Wall. This is all that remains of the temple in the time of Jesus, the time of Paul. That's all that remains. It's called the Wailing Wall. That's its nickname. It's the Western Wall wall of the temple. Here's a picture taken a little bit further out. You can actually see that wailing wall. Do you see that, that section of wall right there? Do you see up to the left, do you see that mosque up there? That's obviously a lot of contention in Jerusalem because if that's the western wall where the temple used to be, then this mosque has been built on the spot where most people believe the temple should be. So you can imagine the tensions over there related specifically to this exact thing. In fact, here's a representation just to give you an idea of the grandeur of that temple in those times. So you see down there, do you see that section? Now, this is a, a model that's over there. I guess when you go over there, you can actually see this. Somebody's built a scale model of Jerusalem, and you can see there the temple. Now, notice down there, the Wailing Wall. Do you see it right there? That's where the Wailing Wall would be. Can you see how huge? Let me go. In fact, let me go back. And you visualize that whole other big temple on top of where that's at. So there's that way. See how big people are? See that little section of wall right there? Imagine right where that mosque is. That's what, I mean, you can see, even when we go back here, do you see right where that mosque is? It's kind of right about where that temple ought to be. Now, I show you this not for those reasons, but to give you a, an idea of the grandeur of Jerusalem at this time. Okay. Now, Paul has gone into synagogues of Jews. Has it gone well? No. He's now in Jerusalem on home turf with this kind of grandeur. Can you imagine already what might be brewing as Paul steps into the temple? In fact, let me give you a little bit more information. Felix, I mentioned earlier, Felix was the Roman uh, procurator or the governor of this particular area. He ruled from the year 52, which has been a while. We're about the year 57 right now. He's going to rule for another two years after this. 
he is eventually taken out of ruling. He's uh, taken off his, uh, out of his position because he cannot manage the Jewish people. It's not much after this that there's huge rebellion and revolt in this area. Okay, So, so understand the, the temperature, we could call it, of Jerusalem at this time. Felix had actually, uh, his way of handling the Jewish issues was just killing people. So there had been several different things that had risen up and Felix just said, just kill them. Innocent civilians had been killed in Jerusalem because Felix trying to squash rebellions. Okay? So how do you think as a Jew living in Jerusalem, how do you think you would feel about an outsider in that environment? Would you, I love foreigners. Is that what you'd be doing? Oh, come on. No. No. Um, not too long before this, he had massacred a huge number of Jewish people who uh, were Egyptian Jews, so Jews that had been in Egypt for a while and had come back. And there's this one particular Egyptian Jew who's actually mentioned a little bit later in our story who had prophesied, he was a false prophet. Josephus actually speaks about him, um, who had prophesied that uh, the Jews would take over the city of Jerusalem. Felix to squash it had all of the followers of this particular Egyptian Jew massacred not too long before this. There was a huge, in all history books, there was a huge sense of Jewish, what you might call Jewish nationalism, and anything that was outside felt like an attack, okay? Which means it could be easily said that the, the situation in Jerusalem was volatile, to say the least, I mean, we think things are, get volatile around here every once in a while and people get worked up about stuff. I don't, I don't think we have any idea the degree it was, except maybe when we're watching the news and we watch some foreign lands where there's like riots all the time in different places, we're thinking, I, I don't know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I watch the news and I think, what's wrong with those people? They're getting worked up about everything, right? But, but this is what it would have been like. There was an angst, an anger, a, a frustration with the situation they were in. Now put yourself in the situation that's happening right now. Who did Paul come into the city with? Think back, he was doing the collection. People were traveling with him. Didn't a bunch of people from a bunch of Gentile churches just travel into Jerusalem with him? Let's be honest, how would that have been received by the Jewish people? Here comes Paul. They've heard about this guy. There's been riots in synagogues all across the empire. And then he comes marching into Jerusalem, bringing a bunch of Gentiles with him. Think for a moment now about James, the elder of this church in Jerusalem. One commentary, I'm going to read just a, a, a bit of it, said the Jerusalem elders were in somewhat of a bind and I don't want to diminish this. This would have been a reality for them. On the one hand, they had supported Paul's witness to the Gentiles at the Jerusalem conference. There was this Jerusalem conference that they had where they talked about the grace of God and they, they'd sent Paul and said, yes, go, go to the Gentiles. So they had supported that. At the same time, Paul has become, in the eyes of the Jewish people, the people that James is trying to win in Jerusalem, his church is in Jerusalem. He's trying to win the Jews, right? These same people. Now, Paul has become, I think the technical term is a person non grata, which just means he's an unacceptable 
outcast sort of person in the Jewish mindset, okay? So he comes in, now James is connected with him. This puts him in a bit of a bind. They did not want to reject Paul. Indeed, they, we just read they praised God for his success. But still they have their own mission to the Jews to consider for that Paul is now a bit of a liability to that mission to the Jews. Does this make sense? So I'm sharing all this to try to get you into the position that these real people were in. James, leader of this church in Jerusalem, is trying to win the Jews that are in Jerusalem. And here comes in Paul, who he loves and is sent on mission, has come back. And there's this, even though much of it is not true, as we're going to talk about in just a minute, there's still this uh, persona that he's, he's pulled upon himself of a, a troublemaker, someone who's stirring people away, especially Jews. It seems like he's turning Jews away from Jewish stuff. And in Jerusalem... That's right at the core of their frustration. So this situation is just, you almost reading it, you feel like you can almost sense the bubbling, boiling pot, right? Now, James is going to continue on here. Now listen to this, um, which by the way, notice that the gift wasn't mentioned. And once again, I think that's because the gift didn't have the effect that Paul was hoping for. I think he was hoping to show, hey, we're not against, we're for, we're with you, we love you. I don't think it had that effect. And here now he's marched into Jerusalem with a band of Gentiles. Now, back to James. It says James continued on. He says, they are all speaking about Jews who were saved in Paul's ministry abroad. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you. They, I think now referring back to the, the Jews that have, are out there, the Jews that are back in Jerusalem, the Jews are hearing this. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That's what we're hearing. That's what they're hearing. Telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. James is just being a realist here. This is the, the message that has come back to Jerusalem about you. Now, Paul, we know, has done a lot of work in this particular area. Teaching, thoughts. And James is re just reiterating what, that Paul isn't guilty of what he's being accused of. He's not telling people, forget Moses. He's defining them to help them understand Moses. That the law ultimately doesn't save. The law, in fact, he says in Romans, only shows us that we're great sinners. James then says, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So James, I think out of a love for his church, a love for Jerusalem, a love for the Jewish people, is going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? They're going to hear that you're here. What is going to happen? What are we going to do? How can, and I think as a leader of this church, he's just thinking practically. I mean, can you imagine a leader sitting down and going, this is volatile. This has now been brought into the situation. This could turn ugly. What, how, let's start thinking in advance how to handle this. What are we going to do? I don't think at all disregarding what God would have them do, but I think in that wisdom of God, they still came down to him and they said, what are we going to do? Surely they had seen the riots in the other city and now they're thinking about what's going to happen here. So this is James's 
uh, advice to Paul. He says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. This is not important to the overall story, but I think that they were under a Nazarite vow, as we'll see right here. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may uh, shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. That seems kind of weird to us, but these these men, whoever these guys are, were under some type of Nazarite vow. And part of their purification process, according to the law, involved them at the end of it, shaving their heads. Paul, that wouldn't have been what Paul was necessarily doing. Uh, but Paul was participating in all this. But this is like a way of saying, hey, just to make sure the Jews know that you haven't just chucked everything out the window, m- do it this way with these guys so that people can clearly see you didn't. And his purification may have been a very typical purification that people would have done anytime a Jew traveled abroad. It was they, when they come back to Jerusalem, before they go into the temple, they would have to go through these certain rituals uh, of purification. And so James says, do what you know the law says. And he says this, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And if you remember back when we talked about this particular passage, this is just a quote from that Jewish uh, council, and it's all about leaving idolatry. The question I have now is, what is Paul going to do? On the one hand, Paul could have been like, and I I gotta say, this might have been, my route. Paul could have been like, I've got liberty in Christ. I'm not purified by some purification ritual. I'm only purified. That was just a picture of what was to come. Why should I have to do all of that for them? They should understand that that's just a a, a ritual and it symbolized what Jesus did. He could have been that way. He could have been like, this is ridiculous. He could have said, they just need to get over it. What do you think he's going to do? The law doesn't save. Um, I got to thinking about it. I was trying to think of an example that might relate to me. And I thought, even though I don't think this would ever happen, what if one of the other Baptist churches in this town said, you know, we'd like to invite Matt to come preach? Now, nobody's chuckling at that, but that would be ridiculous. It probably would never happen. But let's say John's chuckling. Okay. Let's say it did. Okay. Now, let's say it was one of the, 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 the little bit more old school Baptist churches. Now, I could, and I'm going to be honest, I'd be tempted to show up the day of the sermon in jeans and a t-shirt, my Edgewood t-shirt, now that I know that we have Edgewood t-shirts. I'd be tempted to show up in my jeans and my t-shirt to preach that day. I'd be tempted to. I should, shouldn't I? He's, he's agging me on. I might even tell Charity if she's coming with me to put on her jean skirt jumper. <laughs> right? But let's see what Paul does. You think he goes the route of Matt Harmless? He's not going to. Listen to what he does. He says, then Paul took the men And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. 
I, I got to be honest. That may not seem like a big deal, but I read that and I thought, that's humility. That's humility, isn't it? He doesn't argue. He doesn't fight it. He says, absolutely. Paul the Apostle loved the Jewish people. He was a Jew himself. In Romans uh, uh, 10.1, Paul writes this. This was written just before this time. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking about the Jews, is that they may be saved. Paul wanted desperately to see Jews come to Christ. They were God's people. He wanted to see them be saved. Uh, a chapter before this in Romans 9, he actually goes as far as saying this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's getting ready to say, absolutely true according to God. You can, God knows my heart, I'm telling you. He says this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Do you realize what he's saying when he says this? And we know he means it because it's in the Bible. And before he says it in the Bible, it says, God is my witness, this is true. He says, if it was possible, I would wish that, he said, if, if it would save them, I would be accursed for them. I'll go to hell if they don't. You think Paul loved the Jewish people? What about the ones you think that at the synagogues that rioted against him? Think he felt this way? Absolutely. I don't know many of us that could go as far as Paul in our love for people to be able to say, if they would be say, I would go to hell. Now, Paul knows that's not true. It's not possible. There's only one that can take the penalty of sin, and that's Jesus. But Paul's love was so great. He said, man, if I could, I'd do it. Now, I'm going to pause here in my notes, and I want to tell you right now that all morning I've been pondering what I have in these notes up to this point, this point right here. And I've got a, this big chunk after this, and I'm not going to go through all of it. Because the more I was sitting here and just, you know, we're singing, but I'm sitting there praying, Lord, help me to know what to say. It comes right down to this for us today. This is where we need to go. Are we, do we love people like that? Is that the extent of our, like, can we say, Man, I would, if it, if it meant heaven for them, if it meant them understanding, if it meant them having their eyes opened, God, I, I'd be accursed for their sake. Cut off from you. I love you, Lord, but love them so much that I would be willing. Look at this humility in action. So I want to go here next. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says this, For though I am free from all, this is playing right into why, I think, why he decided to go the route he did. 
when James said, let's do this purification ritual, I think this plays right into it. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. I think Paul, as he's going through this purification ritual, knows between him and God, this does nothing. But if it might mean that one might see my willingness to submit and get saved, I'll do it. Paul goes beyond this. Verse 21 in 1 Corinthians, he says this, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things. Let these words just resonate in your head. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He closes this particular part, and I want to come back to verse 22, but he closes this by saying, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is something that's so glorious to Paul that God would save people purely by grace. It's such good news that Paul says, I'm willing to do, I'm willing to be any kind of person to anybody for the sake of the gospel. That I may share, this is key, I may share with them in its blessing. You have Paul, he goes, I, I'm, I'm going to participate in the blessing, but I, I want to share. I don't want it just be me. Everybody I meet, I look at, I want to share in this future blessing. So it leaves me to this, which was originally the middle of my sermon, but now it's going to be the end. What would this look like for you? What would this really look like for you to become all things to all people that by all means you might save what would that look like for you? I'm going to let you chew on that question for just a second. What would it mean for you? What about rich people? I don't like rich people all the time, I've got to be honest. Um, you might flip it around. Poor people. Rich, poor. Are you willing to become all things to all people? I think, in fact, saying that in this circle, I'm around a bunch of wealthy people. I'm not going to go in among them and just be like, looking down my nose at them, right? How about people that just don't have their acts together? You know anybody like that? Ooh, I could really stir it up here. Democrats, Republicans. Are you willing to be all things to all people? So that by all means, you might win some? 
in Danville, we could bring up race, could we not? How about criminals? Felons? What about people living in sin? How are you as a church, as a people? Are you willing to become all things to all people? Now, notice I haven't gotten too much into what this would actually look like, but, but I do think there's some keys here. I think the keys are these. Humility and love. Humility and love. We've already seen the love demonstrated. But let's bring in this aspect of humility very briefly. A passage that many of you have heard is Romans 3.23. But let this be a groundwork for all human beings that you meet. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a person in this room that has measured up to God's glory in any, any type of measurement that you might try to use. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a person out there or in here that you will ever run into that you could, you could legitimately say, I'm better than them. Jonathan Edwards, a, a preacher uh, from a long time ago, he had this list of resolutions he made as a young man. I'm going to share one of them with you. He said this, he said, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. This is my new ending spot. Resolved. Can we say that as a church? Can we be that way? I love that we got these shirts on today. But can you wear an attitude like this out into Danville? That every single person you meet, there's not, let's be honest, not all of us do that all the time. But can you say, to act in all respects, in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. Paul did this. He considered himself the chief among sinners. Can you do that this week? Can I do that this week? There's some vile people, isn't there? Can you legitimately go out and say, I'm going to, there's not a person I look at that I'm going to, not act like I'm, I'm, I'm the worst one between the two of us. This is where we ought to go. This is what Paul, I believe, demonstrated with these Jewish people. He humbly, lovingly submitted to what he thought, hey, I, I can do these things to show them. I love them. I gotta be honest, Matt Harmless may not have done that. Matt Harmless might have barged into the temple saying, well, I don't have to do this stuff anymore. But not Paul. I'm going to close. Um, we're actually going to close with communion today, which I think is fitting. Because as we take communion, 
And by the way, on a side note, one of the reasons why we're doing this is not just leading up to Christmas, but um, a couple weeks ago we were talking about when Paul met at this church in Troas, and it says they gathered to break bread. And we started looking at the scriptures and realizing that so often when they gathered together, they did gather to break bread to do this thing here. I know that sometimes we don't do that every week, and one of our concerns is that it's going to become uh, mundane, not meaningful. I don't want that to happen. But this ought to serve as a remembrance. Because even greater than Paul walking into the temple was a Jesus who left glory and walked this earth. I mean, God in the flesh got his feet dirty, had to go to the bathroom, walked around with people. And you see him, what do you see him doing? Going to the sinners, willing to talk with them, to fellowship with them, pointing them to the great goodness that he was getting ready to bring on the cross. So when we take this today, I hope it's a remembrance for us to think even greater than Paul, because I think Paul was looking to the greatness of Christ and what Christ did when Christ went to Jerusalem. Because you see Christ doing the same sorts of things when he, right before the crucifixion, goes into Jerusalem following certain things and traditions and customs. So Paul had his eyes on Jesus. So let's look even past Paul today and his great love for the Jews to, to Christ and his great love for all of us.